This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane, and it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. My guest today is Willow Defabaugh, the editor-in-chief of Atmos, a luxurious biannual magazine and engaging website dedicated to the intersection of climate and culture. Atmos features interviews of leading voices in the climate movement, such as Jane Goodall and Sylvia Earle, and beautiful photography and art portfolios that make the subject not only approachable, but understandable, like we try to do here on The Green Dream. As many of my guests say, radical change is necessary if we're going to slow down climate change. And we all know that change is hard. But as a trans woman, Defabaugh understands keenly what it takes to embrace profound change. And she believes that as a society, as a community, we can absolutely do it. Defabaugh grew up in Michigan and studied journalism at the University of Michigan. But she also loved all things fashion. And 10 years ago, back when she was still a he, scored a coveted internship at GQ and Vogue magazines in New York. From there, Defabaugh worked for a series of fashion publications and eventually landed at V, the hip downtown magazine, climbing up the masthead to editor. By 2018, Defabaugh was suffering from burnout while simultaneously growing more aware of fashion's impact on planet and people. Just as she was going to quit media, she met an entrepreneur named Jake Sargent, who suggested they launch an artful, glossy magazine that examines climate from a cultural point of view. Defabaugh took on the challenge, a massive endeavor for such a young editor, but she has been called a media wonderkin more than once. The first issue came out in early 2019. While maintaining a publication schedule throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, which was not easy, as she'll tell us, Defabaugh decided to also transition. Today, we'll talk about all of it, climate, culture, consumerism, and how nature was an inspiration and a guide for her transition. As she has said, transness is the ultimate embodiment of nature because nature is a force of transformation and evolution. Willard Defabaugh, welcome to The Green Dream. It's a delight to have you here today. It is a delight to be here. Thank you, Dana. So tell us about Atmos, your biannual magazine about the intersection between climate and culture. What is that? What does that mean? So Atmos was really born out of a question. I had spent much of my career in publishing, working at different arts and culture and fashion magazines. And as the climate crisis became increasingly loud, I became very interested in the question of why coverage of the climate crisis has always felt so clinical and data-driven. Because we've had information public about the climate crisis for decades. Absolutely. We had it when I was a kid. Back then, we called it ecology. Exactly. I remember learning all this back in the 1970s. 
Right. But we've only seen real shifts in public perception in the last five years, honestly. And I'm going to get a little bit more into why I think that is. But coming back to Atmos, you know, I was really curious what would happen if I approached some of the creatives and visionaries and storytellers who I'd been working with in the arts and brought their specific skill sets to this subject. Because ultimately, what the arts are able to do is move people. Right. And we need people to be moved. That's the best way to ensure people are actually beginning to advocate on behalf of the earth. And you know, what is really at the heart of the climate crisis is a separation between our species and the rest of nature, right? We have this idea. Compartmentalization. Yes, compartmentalization. We have this idea that climate and culture are separate, right? And so we call ourselves a climate and culture publication, but even that's a little misleading because in my belief, they're one in the same. And so much of our storytelling is geared around trying to get people to understand that by illuminating the intersection of the two. Because in coming back to kind of this shift in public perception around climate, when the world saw teenagers across the globe skipping school because they might not have a future, that was powerful, that moved people because there's a human element to it. And not only that, there was an emotional component to it that just hits different than pure data. And I believe watching those strikes begin to unfold while all of the wildfires were seemingly at their peak a few years ago, that really started to shift people's minds. And so all of our storytelling with Atmos is really geared around bringing in that human and emotional element and trying to get people to understand that this is a deeply human issue. Yes, of course, we care about the flora and the fauna, but the fauna, of course, includes humanity. And it includes the children who are coming up around the world right now wondering what their futures are going to hold. Now, how do you capture this in the magazine? I know you have these really great deep think pieces. You have really cool Q&As. You have these photo portfolios and art portfolios that are just extraordinarily stunning. How does this work in relation with climate? How do you put it together? Well, I work with an incredible team of people and a global team of contributors. And I really have to pay credit where credit is due because the publication would be nothing without them. And, you know, on our side, we always start with a theme. And to me, a magazine is like a tapestry and the role of an editor is just weaving different pieces together. And we're always looking at different themes that in some way speak to the cultural moment and the climatic moment. Sometimes the themes come and we don't necessarily know why. And then by the time the issue comes out, I'm completely surprised. Our third volume was themed Flourish and Collapse. And we were looking at the beauty of the natural world alongside its collapse. And I remember the issue ended up hitting right when the pandemic started. And it felt like such a moment where you were seeing these awful tragedies unfolding around the world. And at the same time, you were also seeing people coming together in ways that they hadn't in so long. So I'm really interested in how we can capture cultural and climatic moment within a magazine as if it were a time capsule, because I think that print publishing will always play that role as being these kind of tomes and artifacts of where we were as a species and as a planet at a particular point in time. And so after we decide on a theme, we will just go out to our network of contributors, and that will include fashion photographers, it will include environmental reporters, poets, creative writers, scientists, 
and we'll ask what the idea of the theme really sparks for them. And I love running a publication like this because I love giving people a platform to do something that they don't normally get to do. One of my favorite things is to work with science writers because they always have such specific parameters that they often have to work within. And giving them a space where they can talk about the natural world a little bit more creatively, Mm -hmm. because similar to journalism, similar to culture everywhere else, there are such strict divisions and lines drawn within the scientific space around what is considered appropriate. And so many of those can be traced back to colonial roots of needing to understand us as being separate from nature. That's what I talk about with my book a lot. It's basically corporate colonialism. It's still a colonial mindset, except now it's businesses that are doing it. And, you know, it's interesting because you do do a physical magazine, you print something we can actually hold and read. And coming from legacy media myself, you know, I worked at the Washington Post when we only had a print edition. And I worked at Newsweek magazine, which went down into flames and now sort of exists as a shell of itself. But the Newsweek magazine I worked for is long gone. And there was lots of talk about the death of print. Yet you had the courage to put out a print magazine and kept it going through the pandemic, which I applaud. That's very courageous. So how do you make it work? Everyone says it's impossible to put out print now. It's too expensive and nobody works for free. Clearly you pay some folks something. So how do you make it work? Well, I have to say I'm very fortunate. And speaking of paying credit where credit is due, my co-founder for the publication, Jake Sargent, is the sole founder of the publication. So it's a philanthropic venture for him. And Oh, it's a philanthropic venture. That's why it looks so great and isn't drowning in advertising. Exactly. And um, we're also a nonprofit. So just that alone has really helped us break out of so many of the different constraints that I've worked within publishing for the past decade and not having to worry about pleasing advertisers or muddying the content in any way. It it is huge. And to also just let the storytelling really be the focus. I mean, the mission for both of us is just to reach people. Now, you've said that storytelling is a key to getting the message of climate change across, that data is just scary, scary. And we hear these numbers and climate anxiety absolutely exists. I mean, there was a piece of the New York Times a few weeks ago that said that people are going to their shrinks and now shrinks are specializing in climate anxiety which I find remarkable. And even my husband every once in a while says, oh, I'm suffering from climate anxiety. I can't take this anymore. Are we all doomed? So first of all, you all don't focus on that, but it is data-driven and it's scary. How do you make it less scary? Well, that is the question. (laughs) And that is the question. That's what we try to do on the green dream too. Yeah, it's the question I think all of us in this space are really asking ourselves. I think so much of it comes down to togetherness, which is maybe an unexpected answer. Community. Community. I think the number one thing that I hear, and I'm sure you get this as well, when people find out that I work in sustainability and climate is, oh, it must be so depressing. It must be so anxiety inducing. And yes, we all have those days, 100%. But at the same time, I think when you find yourself becoming more involved in the work, you're just surrounded by people who are also working towards the same goal. And that fills you with a sense of hope that you don't have when you're isolated. When you just think- Hope and optimism. Yeah. Yeah, because when you just think that the climate crisis crisis is this abstract thing that you're thinking about in isolation, of course it's terrifying. And it is terrifying, but when you are working alongside other people and I see Dana's doing her part over here, I'm doing my part over here, we have the storytellers, we have the engineers, we have the climate scientists, we have all the different members
members of a functioning ecosystem who are working towards this particular goal, I think that that really does provide that sense of climate optimism. And I think storytelling has the ability to show people that they are connected to something larger than themselves. Because stories are how we relate to each other. They're how we relate to our larger species and the human experience. And to be able to read the experience of someone, whether it's them articulating the grief that they feel around the climate crisis, or it's a new invention or discovery, that can really help someone feel less alone in this fight. Absolutely. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. Let's return to my interview with Willow Defabal, the editor-in-chief of Atmos, a luxurious biannual magazine and engaging website dedicated to the intersection of climate and culture. It can be found at atmos.earth. Now, you've had some really great guests and interviewees and story subjects like Yoko Ono. Tell me about Yoko Ono. Well, Yoko was in our first issue and in a lot of ways, I think, set the bar for me because releasing a new publication, you just never know. It's such a gamble. The first edition, we had Yoko, we had Anoni, who is an artist who I love and respect so much. We had photographers like Ryan McGinley, people who I never imagined would come to the table. But I think what we really found was just people were in this moment of paralysis, which I think is still happening. But the overwhelming sentiment was, I want to help. I don't know how. Let me help right. in any way that I can, especially with people who are used to working in the arts and everything. Just having an outlet for this, I think, was a very different experience. Planetary health and well-being has always been a huge part of Yoko's work. So I think for her, it was probably a no-brainer. It was the shortest interview I've ever done. She was extremely articulate and concise with her words, and they were still profound. Set a high bar. And were you total fangirl? Were you fangirling? You no, know, interesting. Yes, on a certain level. Interestingly, I worked as a music journalist for a long part of my career before Atmos. When I was at V, music was kind of my main beat. And so I felt like I got a lot of my celebrity musician jitters out of the way, so to speak. But Yoko's still pretty. Yoko's still pretty major. You know, it's funny when I used to freak out and fangirl about those kinds of things. Now it's more like the scientists I speak with who I start to fangirl out over or the environmental writers and things like that. So it's just interesting how things... Like Jane Goodall. You had Jane Goodall in the magazine. Yes, that was an um, incredible interview to moderate. It was between her and a young activist named Jamie Margolin. And that was part of a really fun series we did where we were pairing legends in the environmental space with young activists. So we had the two of them in conversation. Dr. Goodall insisted on meeting my dog who made an appearance during our interview. <laughs> that was definitely a life highlight. We had Dr. Vandana Shiva, who is just everything she says is just pure poetry and will blow your mind. And she was in conversation with Kevin Patel and other young activists. And those kinds of series where we're kind of bringing worlds together are always some of my favorites. And then you had TikTok activists. Who are the TikTok activists and what do they do? And should I be one? That is a great question, Dana. Um, I'm asking myself the same one every single day. Um, you know, I think it's important to reach people where they are. And there is a whole generation of young TikTok activists. Some of them I previously mentioned, 
you know, others like Isaiah Hernandez comes to mind, people who are really using their platforms to reach people how they're wanting to be reached right now. And, you know, I feel very conflicted about it because obviously I launched a print magazine. I love having long form journalism. I love have long form storytelling. And it definitely scares me a little bit, you know, this generation of 15 second content. It's definitely something I think a lot about, but I think that ultimately we need to reach people in every single way and every single format that we can. And so it's all storytelling. Yeah, exactly. And so if they're using TikTok to get the message out there, then more power to them. Now, one of the things you do is you weave fashion very deftly into climate and atmos. You come from a fashion background. You went to the University of Michigan, you studied journalism, but then you went to New York and you landed an internship at Vogue. So tell us about that. Most importantly, tell us about the Vogue closet, the legendary Vogue closet. Well, you have definitely done your homework. Yeah, so I always knew I wanted to work in publishing and I've always been hugely passionate about fashion and the arts, especially the role that fashion plays in in self-expression. I've also always been interested in the environment. I just never knew that at a certain point I would be able to kind of intersect and interweave those different things. But, you know, when I got my first internship and I was at Vogue, it was like so many dream come true. I mean, it was all of the things that you read about. It was working till nine or 11 every night and going on runs and having fabled rides with Anna in the elevator. It was all of those things. It taught me so much about the importance of paying attention to detail, because I think being in that space, every single aspect of every single story that is told is so intentionally crafted and woven together. And you see the lengths that people go to. I mean, my first shoot I ever worked on was two-day shoot in Montauk with Grace Coddington. And, you know, it was for a story that was like a couple pictures. And that level of attention to detail, I think, was really profound for me to witness and have definitely carried it through to today, I hope. And the Vogue closet? I mean, the Vogue closet was beautiful. It was, it's, it's not a closet, it's a room. Let's it's a, a couple room. rooms. This was back when Condé Nast was in four times square. So I haven't been to the right. One World Trade Center closet. With the really good cafeteria. Yes, exactly. I used to go there then. And then you went to V Magazine. And how was that different? How, what did you learn there? Completely different world. You know, V was this, our offer, office was on... It's sort of this cool downtown magazine. Exactly. Right? I was just going to say our office is on Mercer Street, you know, kids skateboarding outside the office. And it was so much fun. <laughs> you know, we would just have days where Miley Cyrus would pop in and want to pretend she was our receptionist and she would answer the phone or, you know, Katy Perry would pop by and pretend she was an intern. I mean, so many things that I saw during that time were just That's crazy beyond things that did not happen at four times square. Yes, exactly. And I think that my biggest takeaway from that experience was how to one, how to make it work. That was an independent publication that did not have the kind of big Condé Nast budgets at that time that were behind it. So it was always about dreaming and doing the impossible. We would have meetings where our editor-in-chief, Stephen Gann, would come up with this crazy, big, magnificent idea. And, you know, we would think, how are we going to do that? And we would always find a way. And that was like the number one thing I took away from those six years I was there was just never say never when it comes to storytelling. There's always a way in and there's always a way to tell the story the way it needs to be told. And I'm extremely grateful for that. Now, fashion has a real challenge with sustainability because 
because most people, as I've encountered since I've been promoting my book, Fashionopolis, say they can't afford to buy sustainable fashion, that it's too expensive. And it's not just fashion, it's everything. They'll say the organic market is too expensive for their groceries, that even Whole Foods is too expensive, that being sustainable is expensive, they can't afford it. And now with the record inflation that's going on, it's even more expensive. How do you reconcile this in Atmos to talk to people and say, you know what, you can't afford this, you just don't realize you can, or here are some other options to make it more approachable. There's a lot of shame going on with sustainability. The corrections, the reformations in our way we do things in climate has been pushed off onto consumers. And then they say, well, we can't afford it, we can't do it. How do you work that out? And how do you approach this through the magazine? Well, first of all, I'm so happy that you brought up the word shame, because I actually think shame is one of the biggest obstacles that we have towards creating actual change. Because psychological Mm. research has shown that when someone is experiencing shame, they're really blocked off from any pathways to growth. They kind of shut down. I'm thinking of Brene Brown. She has a whole body of research around this. And so when you make people feel shame or when you make them out to be wrong, it's really not helping our cause. And so I think that creating uniform solutions that we pretend can work for everyone is not going to be the answer because it's going to lead to a whole subset of people that you're speaking to feeling ashamed that they can't meet those goals, right? Can't meet them so they don't even try. Exactly. And so I think it's about meeting people where they are and not presenting this as being some kind of binary issue or black and white issue. If you have the resources and you have the funds to shop sustainable firsthand clothing, then great, support those designers who are out there doing that work because they need to be supported. It's not fair to say that we should be expecting every single person to do that because oftentimes it is a little bit more expensive. But there are other avenues. I always come back to secondhand clothing. The amount of clothing waste that is out there, and I know I don't need to tell you this, but it's just mind-blowing. Staggering. It's staggering. I think about Liz Ricketts and the Aura Foundation, who spoke at the conference you and I were both at last month, and millions, millions of articles of clothing flowing into Cantamanto Market in Accra, Ghana, that just comes from the West and goes to waste. There's so much out there. And secondhand clothing, there's a distinction between secondhand and vintage, because I think vintage has actually become rather expensive, because I think there's, you know, a whole curated world around it now. But secondhand clothing is, for the most part, affordable. Can't always measure up to the prices of fast fashion, but it's pretty close. We went to a Salvation Army store in Florence, Alabama, when I was speaking with Natalie Channon at her workshop there at Alabama Channon. So my daughter and I dropped into the Salvation Army store and she bought a Ralph Lauren shirt for $1. There you go. There you go. And, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, inter- online shopping is a whole whole thing, but the internet can actually help us with this. I mean, sites like Poshmark and The Real Real, the Vestiaire Collective. Mm-hmm. I de- my daughter just sold yesterday. She's like, oh, I sold something on Depop. I yes. can go out tonight. Depop. <laughs> and obviously there, there's shipping and emissions and everything associated with that. But it's become so much easier to be connected to what you actually want to shop and buy. You know, I mean, the amount of times I've even like, if there's something that I've seen that I really feel strongly like, oh, I would love to buy this, but it's firsthand, I'll just go and look on Poshmark and chances are someone is selling it. And so 
those alternatives are always there and they're always available. And most of the time they're much more affordable. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I read you said once that was just the most extraordinary statistic is that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of all global emissions. I just find this mind-blowing, but yet completely believable. Of course, uh, some of these are going to be the big oil companies and the automobile companies, but what are some of the other ones? Do you know? Well, most of them are the big oil companies. Of course, Exxon is at the very top, I believe. You know, I think the scariest part is that a lot of them I don't even necessarily know. And I did this interview with the musician Grimes recently. and For the magazine. Yes, for the magazine. And we were talking about her album, Misanthropocene. And the whole concept behind the album was turning climate change into a villain. Yes. And I didn't understand the whole concept behind it completely until this conversation. But what she shared was that she thinks that climate is so difficult for us to surmount because we don't have visibility around the villain. People love to have a clear villain, right? We love in yep. stories where there's these iconic I mean, figures. look at James Bond movies, right? Exactly. You know, superhero films, all of those things. But most of the villains, when we talk about the climate crisis, are men in suits who we can't necessarily name. And so that invisibility is like part of their superpower. That's kind of how she put it. And I actually think that that's something that we all, myself included, need to spend more time doing is actually illuminating who are the people who are at the top of these different companies because yeah. so far it's just kind of the same few people who we recite as being the climate villains. Yeah. And the other thing that I learned reading up on you that I don't think I knew, or if I knew I'd forgotten, was that it was big oil that invented the calculating your carbon footprint, which therefore flipped the blame onto the consumer. The most genius PR tactic ever invented and the most insidious because it's exactly like we were talking about with shame earlier you convince yeah. the whole population that this is our mess and suddenly you have every we're responsible for cleaning it up mm-hmm and suddenly, then we are in our way because it takes to quote dear Hillary Clinton it takes a village <laughs> it does you know as we were discussing I think binary solutions are never the answer I think mm -mm. on the one hand it's hugely important for us to remember that there are actual machinations that have led to us feeling that this is all our fault and yeah. you know even if we all recycle perfectly and shop secondhand perfectly there will still be these companies that are contributing to 71% of all emissions it's a Mammoth pollution. Mammoth pollution. And it's important for us to remember so that we know where we're directing our energy, right? And we're also directing our energy towards organizing and policy reform and change. And at the same time, that doesn't excuse us from having an individual impact because, of course, the amount of plastic that we come into contact with and that we release, all of those things absolutely make a difference. And so I'm always weary of any binary solutions or binary thinking because ultimately right. we need change from the bottom up and we need change from the top down. Now, since you were throwing around the word binary, that leads us to a new topic of discussion that fits in perfectly about transformation and that you have transformed or transitioned. Mm -hmm. Did you do this during the pandemic? It has been during the pandemic, yes. Wow. So you had a lot going on. You're, and you kept the magazine going. I kept I'm the magazine like, going. Know, <laughs> pin a medal on this person's lapel. This is, this is a lot to <laughs> carry through a very tricky time. So how was it to go through this? But more importantly, how does it relate to what you're doing at Atmos and climate justice and climate awareness and, you know, the idea of transformation and realignment and change? 
Well, this is my favorite, favorite thing to talk about. So I'm happy that you brought it up. You know, (laughs) my transition has changed the way I see everything. And, you know, so much of what we talk about and what we try to do at Atmos is reconnecting with this idea of like, how do we engage people through storytelling is I love to publish personal stories, personal essays, personal perspectives. You know, we published a story on the site just yesterday from a science writer who, you know, has been working in the sciences for her whole career. And she talked about how her transition changed the way she viewed biology, right? And so I'm very interested in how our unique experiences and perspectives can inform what we bring to specific movements. And in speaking about kind of hope and optimism, I see everything through a lens of transformation because I've lived it. You know, I think about the pandemic and like it's, it has been such a challenging time and also quarantine felt like such a literal chrysalis to me. You know, I felt like I was just liquefying and I'm maybe now emerging on the other side. I don't know if we ever fully emerge, but it has completely colored how I see everything because I know that transformation is possible. And that's the number one reason why I do have optimism in doing this work is because I know that people can change. People can absolutely change. People can absolutely change. They change every single day. If we put our minds to it, we can change anything. Exactly. And I think intersectionality has just become the most important part of activism because we have been trying to solve all of these global crises. Coming back to a word you use, compartmentalization, right? We're working on this, we're working on this, we're working on this. They're all connected and they're all the same. If people want to understand how the recent attacks and transphobia against the trans community impact climate, one, the same people who are passing that legislation are the same people who are in bed with the big oil companies. So that's a very obvious connection. But two, when I have a day and I wake up and I see yet another bill has been introduced or come through that might jeopardize my future. I mean, it's starting with Oh, I mean, the news today about Senator Manchin saying, I'm not just going to support anything you put through on climate. I was like, oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's exhausting. And when you add on top of that, the transphobia that we're experiencing in this country, that impacts my ability to get out of bed in the morning. All the different phobias. There's all sorts of phobias going on. Exactly. Especially when you're dealing with marginalized communities who are dealing with multiple levels. I'm thinking about even Roe versus Wade a few weeks ago. When you're dealing with so many layers and so many fronts, it impacts your ability. I remember actually Ayanna Johnson said a few years ago, I think it was around when George Floyd had been killed. She's an incredible marine biologist. And she was saying, my work is to come up with climate solutions and I'm distracted because of systemic racism. If you want a clear example of how these two things intersect, look no further because I can't get anything done today because I live in this country. It's all connected. And as we say on The Green Dream, every story is a climate story, and every climate story is a story about society and poverty. You cannot solve climate until you've solved poverty. Simple as that. Thousand percent. It's a human story. Climate and culture. Same thing. Climate and culture. I got two last questions. Tell our (laughs) listeners how they can get Atmos. So Atmos is completely direct to readers. So our website, atmos.earth, if you check out our shop section, you can order all of the issues there. Part of the reason for that, we used to be on newsstands, but it's very hard actually to control the amount of waste that you have when you send to newsstands because we actually don't have any agency in what a newsstand will do with the leftovers. Right. And there's so few left anymore too. It's really hard to find a newsstand. Exactly. So atmos.earth, that's where you can check out the magazine. And we also have 
have daily digital content as well. Our digital team is so incredible. And they're the ones who are focused on daily storytelling while we're working on the print magazine, which comes out twice a year. And then you live in Brooklyn, which is not necessarily the most green neighborhood in America. How do you make it more green? How do you live a green life in a dense urban area? Tell our listeners some ways they can green up their lives. Well, first of all, I will say I live in Greenpoint in Brooklyn, so well, it is done. a little bit greener here. We do, <laughs> we do have parks. But well done that. This is a, something I struggle with constantly doing this work, but living in a big city. But I think we have to remember that everything is nature. And it seems that we are so separate from it when we do spend time in big cities. But there is an ecology to every single place that you live. And I did an interview for Atmos with the author Richard Powers recently, author of The Overstory and Bewilderment. And he mentioned this idea to me of living where you live. And I thought that that was so simple and so, so eloquently beautiful. We all live in in places that actually have a rich ecosystem, whether it's the people who live there, whether it's shops or whether it's the flora and fauna. And so the pandemic actually really helped me with this because- Reinforced it, the idea of it. Yeah, of locality. you couldn't go very far. You couldn't go far. I mean, I was going to farmer's markets where I could shop outside. I was only going to local grocery stores in my neighborhood. And that just really opened my eyes up to how important it is for us to plug into the places where we actually live. I like to think of fighting climate change is like a patchwork quilt and each community is a patch. And if we sew it all together, then we have a big quilt and it all holds together. When people say, how's the world going to solve climate? How are we going to feed the world? You can't feed the world, but you can feed the people in your circle. And then all those circles, all those patches add up to something bigger. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we learned during the pandemic by being forced to think local instead of global Mm -hmm. because we had a global pandemic. I think it's a really interesting notion and I'm sure you're going to explore it more in Atmos. It was wonderful to have you on the program. Keep up the fabulous good work. Thank you so much, Willow Duffelbaugh. It's just been wonderful to have you here today. Thank you so much, Dana. It has been so enlightening talking to you and you keep up the great work as well. And I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning into my first season of The Green Dream. Being officially French, I'm taking off the month of August, but I'll be back on September 6th with an interview with Cameron Silver, founder and owner of Decades, the celebrated vintage couture and pre-loved fashion boutique in West Hollywood, California. Cameron and I will gab about red carpet dressing for the Emmys and the Venice Film Festival. Will we see vintage, rewearing, and why it's chic to repeat? I hope you'll join us. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. This episode of The Green Dream was sponsored by the sustainable fashion brand, Another Tomorrow. Written by Dana Thomas, from Talkbox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert, with mix and master by Kayla Elrod, music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. The Green Dream is a production of Wondercast Studio. You can find us online at wondercast.studio. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can read my monthly column, also called The Green Dream, in the magazine or online at vogue.co.uk. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, where my handle for both is Dana Thomas Paris. 
Thank you for listening.